Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Ayers for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. Today I'm talking to Siraj Mitha. Siraj is head of Accelerate, Open City's architecture mentoring programme. We talk about widening participation and the way the profession should, and perhaps even might, open itself up to new publics. Another thing I think might just be the, the notion of representation is seeing if you if you are able to see or uh, uh, yourself in a profession you know if we're able to see people of color sort of climb the ladder in architecture then it, the reality of you yourself perhaps taking part and as an architect and studying becomes far more sort of sort of real but if you're constantly looking architects and it's the same with how we're educated you know we're taught the the sort of canon in architecture mm-hmm. is culturally from quite a small like you know small ethnic pool it's largely you know your Mises your Corbusier's um, your Louis Kahn's A is for architecture a podcast about architecture buildings urban culture and space hello and welcome again to another episode of Ayers for Architecture. I'm with um, Siraj Mitha. Uh, Siraj, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Ambrose. Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Siraj and um, I'm an architect. Uh, for the last three years, I've been working with Stanton Williams, um, two of which I worked on the New Museum of London uh, in Smithfield Market. Uh, before Stanton Williams, I worked for a brief period in Kenya uh, for an architectural NGO. Um, and before that, I worked for three years in Allies, Allies and Morrison Architects, which is based in Southwark. Um, I studied uh, in Kingston University for my part one and two and finished uh, part three in Westminster. Um, I've, I've now left, I recently uh, left Stanton Williams and will be uh, joining Open City as the new head of the Accelerate programme. Fantastic. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what the Accelerate programme is about? Yeah, um, so Accelerate uh, is a program that focuses on uh, encouraging 16 to 18 year olds uh, in or not in colleges, uh, into basically encouraging them to um, venture into professions in the in the built industry, so architecture, engineering, etc. Um, and Accelerate offers a platform across the course of a year whereby we uh, invite students to take part, take part in workshops, a series of workshops um, where we introduce them to sort of craft skills, we introduce them to professionals, so we actually pair the students with um, architects around London. This is all currently London-based. Um, so we pair, there's a period where we pair, pair students with architects in, in London, they take them through various exercises to do with sketching, model making. Uh, we sort of leave it to the architects at the time to create their own like sort of micro brief for those students. Um, and we hope to sort of develop their skills and interest in, in the built professions. Um, and that, the sort of whole thing culminates in the end with a public exhibition. Uh, which which sort of takes place somewhere in London. This year it will be the Brunel Museum <laughs> and uh, the date for that is the 11th of August and uh, it, we're sort of lucky to have be able to exhibit the students' work sort of in real life rather than digitally, which is what was the case, you know, sort of last year. That's good. And, and that's, a, so that's part of a sort of widening participation thing. Is it specifically, is it specifically or is it focused on people that are otherwise underrepresented people from lower economic backgrounds or uh, minorities or marginalized backgrounds that's right yeah i mean it's generally we try to focus on um the cohort being people from underrepresented backgrounds as you say uh, generally people of color Um, not entirely exclusive to that but people who might not otherwise have been encouraged to um explore a profession in architecture or the built industries and so we sort of uh, offer a platform for those people um, in itself to you know to offer that as, a, as an experience but also to uh, a, as a wider aim to diversify um, the built industries and professions yeah that's good um, so you sent me through some really interesting um, three really interesting um, things uh, the um, black females in architecture uh, Le- well, discussion platform, conference, I suppose, small scale conference, part of the um, Open City's 100 Day Studio, no, Architecture Foundation's 100 Day Studio. Um, yeah. And uh, the survey from the AJ Architects Journal 
looking at mm -hmm. uh, diversity and representation. And there was, and, and something from Dizine as well, uh, looking at it as well with, um, uh, looking at this underrepresentation and these slightly awkward questions that, that architecture has to deal with. But I wanted to, one of the things that immediately jumped out of, to me on, on this, particularly in the one in the Architects Journal, was this remarkable graph that the whole thing started with, which suggested that for people of color, architecture was increasingly, since 2018 to 2020, seen as being um, difficult and underrepresentative. Why do you think that, I mean, that's a remarkable, I mean, it's a jump of like from, so sort of a jump of 10% or something like that in, 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 yeah. in a two year period. Yeah. I mean, why, why do I think that? Yeah, well, I mean, what's that? I mean, I would like to kind of understand that a bit better. I think there's a few things there. Firstly, um, you know, the study, the study that you're referring to um, was taken in 2020 at a time uh, that has been, you know, as, as you I'm sure remember uh, the events of sort of June 2020 protest. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people are feel more confident in sort of vocalizing. I know the, the survey was anonymous, but I think despite that, even people feel more confident in vocalizing their experiences of um, of, of being marginalized in the workplace. Uh, and um, yeah, so I think that, that that's partly one of the reasons why it's grown, but also it's one of these things that we assume as a society that we're always sort of always making progress. Uh, and I think that that's something that people generally tend to take for granted if they can't see, uh, if they can't see explicitly the, the, the negative impacts or the negative effects that society might might be bringing forward. So actually these things are, remain largely out of sight for most people, sort of the microaggressions, the sort of, um, the sort of talking down or um, yeah, sort of demoralizing experiences that we face in, in the workplace are largely hidden from public view. And I think <clears throat> because of that, we assume, as I say, you know, that we're making progress, but actually if given the sort of space to vocalize what is actually going on, you see that things are getting worse. Um, what, why they're getting worse, I, I have no idea, but I can, I, can, I can kind of sort of point to reasons, ways of making things better. You know, and that might be indeed diversifying the industry. It might be bringing um, people of color into professions, not just um, as a sort of tokenistic um, sort of thing in like a, a single wave, but creating a system that in, is, is far more inclusive uh, and uh, generates people of color, people from underrepresented backgrounds uh, into positions of, of status in those industries as well. And I think that would might be, I, I would hope, would be an antidote to some of the uh, results that we've seen of increasing uh, marginalization. Yeah, I think that's a, um, it's a really interesting and important point. And but I, I suppose from so I teach in architecture and, and I've worked in small practices um, uh, in in some in London and, and some in the uh, in the Midlands. And I can, I can understand how, um, I suppose, uh, bigotries and racisms might happen in practice, um, particularly the bigger, my, my, guess, my guess is, peculiarly enough, the bigger and more competitive the practice, the more likely you are to be subject to that kind of thing, because the pressures are so great. None of the practices I've ever worked at particularly dealt with pressure, because they it wasn't the business model that they were operating under, but I, but again, I have no no experience of this. But I, in in terms of education, I suppose how do we start thinking about um, improving representation in in the education system uh, in in a way, as you say, in an incremental way rather than in a in a tokenistic fashion? Yeah. Well, I think that you know it needs to be quite a, a systemic, it needs to be quite a systemic change to the way that we grant access into the profession. You know, we have so many, um, we have so many sort of obstacles to overcome before people can even actually begin studying architecture. So 
no, a, a £9,000 tuition fee annually might provide an obstacle to a, a lot of people sort of studying the profession. I, I know a lot of people who I've worked with in the past, not just in architecture, but in creative industries, who say that if we, you know, if we, I, I studied sort of 10 years ago where the tuition fee was £3,000. Mm-hmm. And even that acted as an obstacle. I know that a lot of really talented professionals who say that if it was the case now where we had to pay the increased tuition fees that they just simply wouldn't have been able to go to university it yeah. just wouldn't have been it just wouldn't have been an option for them so that in itself it, it creates an obstacle whereby a large swathe of uh, of the cohort is is um excluded mm-hmm. um yeah and, and another thing i think might just be the notion of representation you know, is seeing if you if you are able to see or uh, uh, yourself in a profession you know if we're able to see people of color sort of climb the ladder in architecture then it, the reality of you yourself perhaps taking part and as an architect and studying becomes far more sort of sort of real but if you're constantly looking architects and it's the same with how we're educated you know we're taught the the sort of canon in architecture mm-hmm. is culturally from quite a small small pool like you know small ethnic pool it's largely you know your Mises your Corbusiers um your Louis Kahn's um whereas you know there's obviously there's obviously sort of Balkrishna Doshi as well that you could look at but it, that's, that's far less spoken about so I think that um in order to um start to bring about change at the educational level people need to start seeing themselves being represented mm-hmm. uh, in education and in practice mm-hmm. no I, I i i do get that and i've i've <clears throat> i've often wondered at the continued um focus on a canon which is actually very old now that's one of the odd things about the canon that we look at as you say corb Mies. we're talking about people that were a hundred years ago um, and they were good designers. I mean, it's undeniable that they were good designers, but a hundred years, a lot of, a lot has happened in that time. Um, yeah. Yeah. That we a lot, a lot kind of, we kind of don't even think about happening, you know, I mean, let alone the internet, I mean, the jet engine and decolonization or post-colonialism or, um, you know, all of these Absolutely. things. And I suppose the question that I, that, that I think myself and lots of other people are now asking is, you know, how how often is is the syllabus? How often is that canon being reviewed? Um, because obviously, as you say, you can learn a lot from those architects. But how you know how reflective are those architects or design principles to the way that we're living now? You know, mm-hmm. as say, if you're a, a person from of an ethnic minority living in in London, you might the way that you experience architecture might be entirely different from your sort of Western cohort uh, or, or sort of, you know, if you were born in, in the UK, you come from the UK, it might be an entirely different experience. So uh, I think that, and, and sort of learning about Corbusier, although, you know, his manifestos, et cetera, you can learn a lot from, I, I imagine that there are large swathes of, of people studying architecture that feel very detached from architecture and, and don't really get to a sense of personal um, personal attachment from learning that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it's important to sort of reevaluate the educational process and, and try to understand and or just try to critique how relevant is that syllabus, how relevant is the canon, and maybe you know there are parts that need to stay, but I definitely think there are parts that need to be possibly possibly reviewed and updated. Yeah, um, I, I want to come back to that. But I, I, the point that you made at the beginning, so this, this issue about access to education is, is, is screamingly obvious. I mean, it's, it's interesting where I teach now, where we have, uh, compared with places I've taught before, a greater representation of people from lower socioeconomic um, uh, status groups, um, which doesn't necessarily, but often enough correlates uh, to some degree with um, students from ethnic minority backgrounds. Doesn't necessarily, but it, there, there, there is, a, there is an, a significant overlap as far as I can see. Uh, I, you correct me if I'm wrong. Um, 
and this issue of money i mean it's not nine thousand it's nine and a half thousand by the way and it's <laughs> and, it, and it's only going to go in 500 quid's quite a lot of money um it's only going to go north from there and then you you know uh what do they reckon it costs about a hundred thousand pounds to do an architecture degree now um which is the price of a decent house in the midlands basically <laughs> or relatively well i mean it, yeah you have to compare you know it's the price of a cheap sports car or a house in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, as I like to think of it. <laughs> um, so, so that is one area that needs to happen. But the other area I wonder about is the actual structuring of the courses themselves. The five years is certainly a problematic thing. And, and, and does the Accelerate program sort of, is it a kind of move in, in a way to address that problem as well? The problem of time? No, I think that, I think this is it. I mean, <clears throat> I'll be going into this position, and I think that a, a large part of my initial sort of role will be absorbing absorbing the um, the format and uh, framework of the course as as is. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and and whilst I once I sort of climatize, then I think that changes could be made. And I think that you know, it's it's exactly as you say. You know, you you're you're preparing. It's a it's a it's a peculiar sort of task that we're being asked to do. The 16 to 18 year olds, you know, college um, students is prepare them for an industry or enthuse them to be part of this industry that probably does, as, you, as you're sort of alluding to, need, needs to be like critically reviewed. I, I'm not sure if, you know, the sort of five year framework does, does particularly work. I mean, I. I, I, from my own experience, it, it sort of helps me. I mean, there were, I sort of just went went along with it. But I, I wonder, I wonder how how valid that still is. I mean, I I, I really can't comment on uh, the, the you know our work with Accelerate. It, it would be to prepare them for a profession in architecture as a whole, and and to be able to. Um, give them a sort of anticipation of the, some of the things they might they might face academically mm. in, in the education process um, and so really we're just adding <laughs> we're really just adding a year on to their to their sort of already lengthy education process to become an architect or an engineer um, but I, I do think that you need to think about these things holistically and I'm, I'm sort of grappling with that idea now is like you know as I say the first part of m- my job will be to absorb and climatize is how much are we going to try and take on? Because I, I'm beginning to realise that, you know, you ha- you have to see this thing as a whole. Because if you're if you're if you're preparing students at one end of the of the process to go into something that you're mm-hmm. not entirely satisfied with or you're not entirely happy with, how can you how can you then do that? You know, with a mm. with a with a clear conscience. Yeah. So it, it's really yeah. I mean, I, I I've been asked uh, since taking since accepting this role with Open City, I, I've been asked, you know, jokingly by um, some of my colleagues, architects, um, you know, how can you, and it's this whole joke of how can you encourage uh, students, honestly, how can you encourage students to become architects? Because, you know, what is, what is an architect? We are very overworked, you know, we are typically probably not compensated for that over time. Um, and in an industry that, you know, I'm, I'm not to talk down. I, I, I love the profession, but perhaps we're not given, in some instances, the uh, the opportunity to voice, you know, our our training adequately. That's as amicably as I can put it. Uh, so, so then, how can you then encourage uh, a cohort of students? And and then this is what I'm sort of grappling with. Is like. Mm. Actually, if we're going to do that, then we probably should try and change the industry that so it works better for us as architects, yeah. and as practitioners, and uh, yeah, yeah. It's it is it is an interesting one. the 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 whole issue of uh, inviting students into, I mean, what what I do wonder is is whether there's been any surveys or studies done on fallout rates and socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds, and whether there is a greater fallout rate, for example, for, um, for um, black and ethnic minority people post first degree um, and where that drop off. And, and you could actually, I, I imagine, could actually start constructing. My guess is that poorer people drop out more. That would be my guess. I wouldn't know if that's true, but that would be my assumption because, you know, you know, 
five years is a hell of a lot of time. And, and after a first degree, you can go and get a job and, and start that, that lovely sensation of being paid for working ridiculously long hours rather than doing it in a studio for free. Um, but I do, uh, yeah, so I think that would be like, for, for me, that would be a, a really interesting study. And I, but my guess is it would back up your point. But just to come on to this idea of representation, particularly um, uh, ethnic minority representation, what does what does voice so you what does voice mean? Like, what does how does identity and the articulation of identity how is it absent in the pra- the, the profession? So, leaving aside, say, for example, issues of overt racism or or, or, or yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, like that's a good it's a good question, and I think you know. This this word voice, I think it is just that it is the the representation of identity and and it's the the feeling of being included, the feeling that people you know the feeling of being included in your built environment and mm-hmm. feeling that your built environment the built environment sort of reflects your needs and the needs of your community mm-hmm. um, and actually you know and and I think this is it you know how how much of London can we can we say does that successfully and mm-hmm. and, I, and I want yeah I, I sort of wonder I I was in Brixton the other day uh, and I used to live in Brixton for about five six years um, and, it, and it's changed a lot you know it's a, it's a really really fantastic place and it's got I think an incredible character and I love places you know London especially has all of these different pockets of places with an incredible sort of autonomous character. Brixton is like nowhere else in, in London. Mm. And I, I sort of think about why that is. And I, largely because the communities in Brixton have taken ownership of that place uh, and, and in, a, in you know, a really organic way. And there has been, uh, there has been pushback, you know, state-sponsored pushback from the police, et cetera, over the sort of course of the last 50 years. But Brixton feels, uh, sort of autonomous I think because the communities have have seized almost like appropriated the area and I think it's architecture's duty to provide for those communities in a way where they don't have to appropriate whereby they are they are provided for and I think mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about in in terms of representation of identity you know if you if you take the various diasporas in London um then you, you it's sort of a, a a plethora of like uh, a sort of beautiful ethnic tapestry. And I think if those things were reflected, I, and it doesn't have to, I wouldn't have thought it would be a sort of physical uh, manifestation, although that, you know, it could be just that um, through architecture. I think yeah. of um, Bushra Muhammad uh, gave a, a lecture on the Architecture Foundation sort of YouTube channel. Uh, which was uh, fantastic. It was on Goetz and Schultz's Lamedi, uh, which is housing for African community in Rotterdam. And she sort of talks through this really beautiful example of uh, Goetz and Schultz's um, built sort of, I think it was 90 units. Um, and the way that they sort of built around that community uh, was by, yeah, fit, but, sort of physical architectures. So a reflection, which were a f- reflection of the people living in those spaces. There was symbolic representation. There was various spatial sequence. There was a color palette, which all required investigation from those immigrant communities, uh, but, w- but which was sort of reflected in that architecture mm. uh, in a way whereby those communities felt represented. They felt their identities had been uh, considered. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there is arguably that sort of process has been put in place with public consultation. But well, you know, in my time designing housing, I I, I am skeptical at how how much public consultation or how seriously public consultation has been taken in the past. Uh, you know, especially in the projects, some of the projects I've worked on, it's usually just a sort of page filler in a design and access statement sort of thing. Yeah. You know, whereby those opinions that the public are given uh, aren't properly considered or properly listened to. Uh, in a way that um, really represents what the community is asking for, rather than mm-hmm. sort of appeases the architectural design. Um, so yeah, it's this sort of notion of democratizing the design process, including mm. 
including uh, the public as as a as a sort of critical um, member of that process, critical uh, sort of uh, pillar of that process, and you know having uh, having that sort of information generated through throughout. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I I did my PhD in 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 Gujarat in India and. Um, uh, was looking at post-disaster reconstruction after the the Buj earthquake, and the group that I was looking at it was a sort of third sector organisation. They used they they used what what I sort of interpreted as a co-productive methodology, where they focused on they focused on social growth and used architecture to precipitate that. And it sounds to me like this. This um, example that you 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 gave in in the Low Countries has that similar kind of quality, where what is being done is not architecture so much as enabling the processes of everyday life to emerge efficiently for yeah. that community. I think that's absolutely it. I think rather than uh, you know, I keep saying this physical manifestation, it doesn't need to be so overt uh, to sort of proclaim itself as, you know, we are uh, uh, an architecture for immigrant communities, mm. whatever it is. I think it's literally about creating, creating that space whereby things can happen. And traditionally, I think that has occurred in this country in, in sort of public spaces, mm. whereby uh, communities uh, feel confident in, uh, in in taking ownership over them, uh, caring for them, tending to them, using them. Uh, and we've also, you know, in the last, <laughs> under, under this government, uh, seen a sort of uh, pairing back of those public spaces, I, mm. I would say. Um, and actually, they're increasingly then sort of more heavily policed, their, um, their, their you know, gates are put up, there are security guards patrolling them, and you begin to wonder exactly how public they, they are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's about creating that space, I think. Yeah, where things where these things can happen. But there, there's a uh, there's uh, the issue. I strikes me in London. London is a sort of runaway kind of capitalist space, yeah. without a particularly strong planning framework. And I, for me, the the, the the issue of representation. I wonder, and I don't know if you've thought about this or whether Open City deals with this kind of idea is the issue of um, systemic change at the level of planning, where I imagine in Holland, the planners are capable of saying, we need to house this particular community. And these are the rules that you're going to, you know, the architects and the developers are going to actually have to play by, or it doesn't get built at all. And I, I, I my, 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 I wonder, and I don't know if you know anything about this, I wonder whether the, at the um, level of planning, there is actually no control in Britain about, you know, you can say I'm going to produce something for, you know, a Somali community. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that you're just producing something for the market. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I, it's interesting when you say, the, sort of, when you sort of mention the, the rules, um, through when you're going through sort of planning processes, and actually, I think it's it might be the rules that have kept pe- these things, you know, certain communities being catered for. Though I, I think it's the rules that have been used as an excuse to not uh, generate sort of the the housing that you're sort of talking about. I mm. I, I think that as far as I'm as, as far as I know, the only way that those those um, those communities are being um, catered for are through percentages on a, of afford, you know, on affordable housing, mm. um, which uh, are increasingly bypassed through uh, various various methods that um, housing developers are savvy to, you know, mm. viability assessments and things like that. I mean, um, Aylesbury, uh, Elephant and Castle, you know, the Haygate Estate are perfect examples of um, existing communities that have that have sort of thrived for you know, decades um, being kicked out for more viable housing uh, initiatives. And, you know, as we've sort of seen from those projects, I mean, if you, I don't know if you, when the last time you were in an elephant in castle, um, but I, I sort of was getting the bus passed not so long ago. And um, yeah, the, 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 the shopping mall is currently being 
uh, sort of demolished. And it, it's quite sad to see because, you know, that was quite an integral, I, I recognise that to be quite an integral part of that community. And the things going up in its place are so, are so sort of different and, and, and not, not good different. They, it's very difficult to derive a sense of community from high rise sort of uh, metal clad uh, residential blocks now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, people, you know, people said that about Haygate Estate, perhaps when it went up in the first place, but those, those communities that were living there have now been shipped out, many outside of London. And mm-hmm. the only, their, their only testament is this sort of 30% uh, of affordable housing goes back, you know, uh, so we are catering for people in the, in the community, which I just don't think is, is enough, unfortunately. No, and it's interesting that Elephant and Castle example. That was a quite a centre for, was it Latin Americans or or? or... I think I think I think it's I think it's yeah Latin Americans yeah yeah. And I, I had a student write a dissertation on that uh, the year gone by, and it was uh, it was really interesting because I had I I don't go to Elephant and Castle that much. I mean, I don't live in London, and if one was yeah. to come into London as a tourist, Elephant and Castle probably isn't up there on your top ten. London sites but um yeah I I so so there's this interesting thing of gentrification so diversity is in in architectural pract practice I mean if he's yeah it, it is challenged by gentrification Our architects are called in increasingly I think to gentrify places which must in a way also act as another barrier to diversity in the profession in a way I mean, it must be kind of odd to be, say, for example, a black, a black person who's the architect required to go in and kind of yeah. clean out communities. Yeah. Well, when you say that, I would, I would probably not use that terminology because, you know, saying to, to clean out would be to say... I, no, I know. I, I, although I know, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, but that therein lies a sort of problem whereby you know, as architects, you know, sometimes you feel like a soldier being told to uh, to go in and do whatever needs to be done, and you're not allowed to sort of turn around uh, to your superior and say, you know, put your gun down. It's sort of like it is. Yeah. It's sort of. It is a bizarre thing that we are, I'm yet to really see being brought into discussion, being brought into a forum, is to actually turn around and say, I don't want to be part of, uh, of bringing together a design that is going to ship communities that have existed for decades in London outside but on the basis of this housing being too expensive for them to afford. Like, that, our efforts are increasingly not focused on the thing that we should be focused on, which is sort of bettering the quality of existing communities. I accept mm-hmm. that, you know, it wasn't so long ago that the, the main issue that we were sort of focused on, and some of us obviously still are, is the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the needs to, the, you know, our sort of needs to build housing at an exponential rate. And that's absolutely true. And, and this sort of ties into gentrification as well. People think that, you know, people say that gentrification is a sort of natural process and uh, uh, whether or not, I, I, you know, I won't, I won't argue against that just now, but let's just say that gentrification is happening, you know, obviously it is happening, has to happen, let's say, whatever, that, that it, it needs to be able to happen in unison with existing communities. I mean, that, that we need to find a way whereby we can create new houses without demolishing old ones and shipping people, you know, and, and shipping people out out of their out of their community there needs to be a way where new businesses can be set up without um without damaging the existing ones that have been there serving their communities for for long periods of time those things need to happen in an ecosystem like sort of coexist in that ecosystem yeah i mean Uh, yeah yeah it's quite it's quite interesting i'm um apologies for um my inappropriate use of friends But I, I do think that that's a, it's a very important point. And it's, for me, the, yeah, so we've got this underrepresentation and a kind of profession that has become increasingly marginalised from 
I suppose, in a way, from issues of justice. And I, I'm kind of interested in, so, so the, the, the Accelerate program is, I, my, my, my assumption is that it's orientated towards increasing diversity because that's a just thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, well, this is it. It's, it. it's about increasing diversity uh, in the profession. Um, and it's, you know, by doing that, I think we need to make people, need to make people understand why this is, why, you know, the word diversity over the last sort of year has been, you know, used to death, I would say, but how many people oh, yeah. re really understand the benefits of, of what a diverse profession in architecture would be. Um, and yeah, I, could you articulate what that might be? Because I think that that would be a really, in, so, so. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It would be, uh, you would get a sort of a variation of sort of beautiful variation of experience, of culture. You would see an end to homogeneity. It will not, you wouldn't, might, might not, I won't go as, uh, be as bold to say you would see an end to homogeneity, but you know, going from the various areas in London, uh, it's exactly what you said with Brixton, it having its own feeling. I think you would then get far more character out of certain areas. Areas would then begin to represent the communities that they host. So you would get architectures that are responsive. You would get, you know, really beautiful public spaces that have, have been cared for by certain communities and reflect those communities. Um, and about, you know, I think people wouldn't be, wouldn't feel sort of left out uh, and, and would feel, com you know, sort of confident walking through their areas that, that you know, the architecture that they, uh, that they experience and that they're uh, sort of living with is sort of reflective of, of them. And when I say of them, it's not so much of like an individual, an individual, it's, it's of a collective, it's of a community. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to walk through a neighborhood and see my sort of name on the side of the building I live in. <laughs> but it's, it's about sort of knowing that, uh, or, or feeling that that architecture is responding to, you know, perhaps you're part of your sort of background as a, as a, a and part of the community that you, that you live in. And, and, it could, my, you know, in my mind, architecture would only be that much more rich for having that diversity of opinion. Mm -hmm. We'd be, we'd be, it's, you know, it's what we talked about with the canon as well. You know, of course, you get a lot from studying East Van der Rohe, you get a lot from studying Corbusier, but th that is, you know, that sort of, that sort of relatively small tight pool uh, of, uh, um, of examples um, taken from the global north is, is great, but you know how how much more could we gain if we open things up to to the to the sort of global south and and, and introduce them into the canon, introduce them into the syllabus. You know, I, I can't see that being a limiting process. No, but it does require a huge amount of expertise in the teachers, and it requires a huge amount of. I mean, very few people who teach in architecture schools have a background in engagement in the global south and and it, so so it's it's a massive it's a massive process to uh, at hand i mean you get a lot of people in other departments and i think this is for me so it's a point that i want to come on to which is this issue of intersectionality which is something that i took from your 100 day studio video um, link that you sent me um architecture has remained as a as a, a uh, educational system very much dominated by architects and that even though we're like a, uh, an enterprise which is incredibly diverse in the way that we have to act like we have to be social workers we have to be designers we have to be mathematicians planners all of these different guys and good at business as well if, if we were to make a fist of it um we don't engage with other disciplines and places things like urban geography sociology um history literature they do have much better representation in their canon of, of di more diverse voices. So, so we'd have to train our, 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 our people like that. I, one of, yeah, so one of the things, um, this issue of intersectionality or of these intersecting things, so that 100-day studio, uh, Black Women in Architecture, um, there, there's a, it starts with, and I'll, I'll post a link to it in, under this podcast, but it starts with a, a, a short lecture and they talk about representation in a very diverse way 
about mothers and women and children and play and obviously um, uh, people of ethnic minority background. And I thought that that was, and, 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 and other aspects as well. And I thought that that was really interesting, that there, there seems to be tied into the whole discourse around underrepresentation of people of color, also a recognition that it sort of goes hand in hand with a general underrepresentation of anybody that's not, I don't know, middle-aged, middle-class, middle-income me. Why? Why? Yeah. I mean that that this is it. I mean it's 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 a difficult conversation to have um, anyway. And I and I and I and the lecture that you're referring to, I thought was absolutely amazing because there are difficult conversations that we need to have. There are difficult questions that need to be asked, and there are you know because because largely because the profession isn't diverse, largely because the press the profession doesn't represent. Uh, the communities it tries to serve, um, but the but this you know black females in architecture decolonizing architecture um, really uh, it sort of takes us through um, the processes of why that might where we are why that might be. Um, so you know you're sort of referring to the introduction of it, and 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 this is it. I think you know we sort of we sort of touched on it a little bit previously, but. That, that the process of public consultation or the democratizing, uh, democratization of the of the design process. Perhaps I, I, I'm, you know, perhaps the public or the people who you're intending to serve, the environment that you're intending to build in, those people need to feature more in the in the process of design. They need to be consulted more thoroughly, and their opinions need to be taken on board more seriously. Um, that that is one side of it. Another side is we need a more sort of diverse range of uh, creative professionals in architecture and in, in engineering and in, in the built professions um, who are able to possibly sort of recognize um, better those communities um, that we're trying to serve. If we, if we carry on the way that we are, I think it's just, it, it, you know, it's quite difficult because we can see that we're, we are, we are failing some of the communities by creating, you know, in, in, in large parts of London, sort of cookie cut molds of housing that respond to, you know, that are this sort of new housing vernacular that responds to a very limited, again, a very limited pool of people. Um, and I think as architects, we, we, should, we should be aiming to, to do better. And I think as part of that, taking on a, a more sort of diverse range of professionals would, would definitely help in that design process. Yeah, sort of transdisciplinary architecture, which could be a really interesting really interesting and some of these smaller smaller scale and more um, avant-garde practices are attempting to do that aren't they and that that's quite good and um, the question I always ask is about scalability so because I'm I'm always interested to try and work out how you can take something so you see example like really good examples of it instances of it but how do you take that up and take it to the level of a city where you've got to replan a place or you've got to plan an entire master plan an entire neighborhood or district like they did with the Lee Valley and during the Olympic Valley kind of thing, you yeah. know, vast area of one of the biggest cities in the world. And, and how do you actually go through a process of supporting voice of supporting identity, particularly of less represented people um, and still do all the work in the time frame for the same quantity of money, and that I guess is at the heart of the issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I you know I think it's as you say, rather than being in, like so prescriptive, you know, it, you you try and just create spaces where things can happen. You try and create spaces where people feel they are. Um, they are being represented, being catered for in a community. I, it's it's difficult. You also need people in positions of power to make these decisions. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not it's not it's not always in the um, in the remit of the architect to be able to sort of stand up in a meeting room uh, and and voice and voice these opinions and and for it to get backing. And um, so you need you need people to really sign up who are in positions of power to, to, you know, to what we're talking about. But it is something to do with, I think, 
partly to do with the, the, the way that architecture has retreated from its, um, its, I suppose its moral potential, like we saw in the, in the post-war period. And you see in the work of people like Balkrishna Doshi, um, you see uh, an idea of architecture for a common good. And, that, and there has been a kind of very obvious retreat from that towards a kind of, you know, fabulous shapes and formalism and, and, and you know, sexy architecture. But, but I suppose, and as a consequence, architects for me get treated a bit like artists, which is that they're a luxury good, but they're not that important. And you could get, you know, a, a design and build company to do the same thing. And I wonder whether if architects were taught and trained to think of themselves with more of a kind of ethical imperative in their work, that, that, that this conversation would be easier to have. People would take us more seriously. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of, uh, part of our cultural education in architecture, perhaps not our actual academic education in architecture, is that you know, if you see the people on the front cover of various architectural publications, magazines, you know, they, are, they, they can tend to be sort of stark architects and we are, you know, the, 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 uh, the media coverage goes towards the iconic buildings in the city of London. And, and so that somehow filters down to become an aspiration in architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of talk about the post-war housing in this country and some of the most interesting projects I've seen were built in that period, most ambitious, mm. you know, ambitious, um, architecturally ambitious projects were built in that time. But I think that there, you know, since then where we are now, there's far more, um, there is, there's far more sort of imperative on an individualist ego to make a name of yourself and have your sort of name on that building. And, and that's what it does rather than be um, um, an architect whose name you might not, you know, you know what you might not know, but was responsible for creating sort of plethora of high quality, affordable housing. Um, that was like sort of quite ingenious. That was quite um, original in certain in certain ways. Um, so I think that we need to sort of try and find a way back to to that in the discipline of actually <clears throat> possibly taking our you know whatever it is our ego out of it and, and and maintaining our sort of our aspiration to create quality buildings, quality housing. Uh, yeah, this sort of formalism I find completely uninteresting, and I think yeah, a lot of a lot of this do, and it's quite sad to see that it generates <laughs> so much um, interest because I, I I I just I personally can't I can't it doesn't it yeah it just doesn't really interest me. It's a it's a shame that we're not focusing on the other things that are no, sort of more it, and it, and it does infect the rest of the way that we are. I think we are trained as. And we have to train architects, but it's. Um, I do remember speaking to an, uh, an architect who was involved in a lot of kind of social good stuff, and they described participation as it not very good for architecture. It makes up, it's it's messy and it doesn't make for very good architecture. And I thought, well, it's very interesting that there's a sort of value system in place about what good is, which generally means kind of Instagrammable, designable, yeah, and. And rather than, as you say, looking at the kind of how, how do you how do you actually embody social identities in their diversity, in their um, but also in their specificity, and I, that that was the thing that I'm kind of really intrigued by this idea that you would want a space that would enable someone to feel represented, but at the same time you've got to work at such a scale that you need, you know, both you and me to feel represented, and you. And me, if you know what I mean, it's like it's a it's a really complex, it's a really complex thing. Um, but it's uh, but it but it is it is really uh, really really wonderful. I was just wondering if you could say um, uh, if you had a yeah if if you could say a little bit more about um, where you would like to see, like what what would be an immediate a, a quick win in this process. Well. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I honestly, um, I'm not sure if there are any quick. I'll, I'll answer by saying I'm not sure there are any quick wins. I, I think what we need to do is make structural change, policy change that enables programs like Accelerate. You know, I'm I'm joining. I'm sort of heading up Accelerate now, and 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 I will be for at least the next year. 
but they that program has been running for 10 years now quite and it's been building you know it's been growing each year and they you know sophie draper and um and everyone over there elliot and cyber have been running it very successfully uh, and i think actually there aren't any quick changes there are there are these sort of slow changes that you need to invest time and, and, and instances money in and you need to just sort of keep with them and have, have the faith and watch them and put the work in and wait for them to come to fruition um i i honestly yeah i i, I think that if there were if there were quick wins that we would have we would have sort of tried them out you know a, a a long time ago. I mean, I, I would say that having people of color in positions of, you know, sort of managerial roles is is great, and being able to have that conversation um, in a meeting room where you aren't the only person of color and and you are being sort of listened to. And that's not to say that if the meeting room is entirely white, you won't be listened to. But it might mean that the issues that you um, think are imperative in that room are shared. You know, the notion of that is shared between not just you, but a few other people because of personal experience. So yeah, that's a really roundabout answer to say that I don't think there are any quick wins, unfortunately. No, no I, I, think, think, I, think that's a, I think that's a fair answer. And I think that that would probably be a, it wouldn't, as you say, it wouldn't be a quick win, but it would be a win. And it's, yeah. can't, it's not that, one would hope it wouldn't take that long to achieve a little bit of better, more diverse representation. Absolutely. At the I level mean, of management. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, just to go back to sort of accelerate for a second, um, you, we're already beginning to see, you know, fantastic evidence of, of the success of the programme. You know, this year we're, we're going to try and get a lot of the alumni from previous years in the programme sort of come together and talk about their experience. I think Accelerate has um, a 70% rate of students that go on to study architecture from, uh, from having access to the programme, the Accelerate programme. Uh, and I think that's like a really fantastic statistic that we'll try to, you know, continue to um, try and increase. Yeah. But just hearing testimony from that alumni uh, and getting them sort of involved in, in coming back and, and meeting the new cohort, I think mm -hmm. is, is a sort of proof of that success of diversifying. It's already diversifying the industry. Yeah. That's really good. And it kind of consolidates one of Neil Pinder's points from that, from that conference as well, that he talked about how it, the exclusion of creativity from curriculums in the eight core subjects means that for those kids that go to private school for you know for public schools as we call them um they get to be become the creative decision makers and your yeah. program kind of subverts that and that's really interesting it just naturally subverts it because it contacts the kids before the that kind of the privilege of accessing higher education is brought to bear. Um, so that's really, really great. Um, thank you ever so much. Um, thank you very much, Andrew. It's been very nice listening to you. Um, and uh, we will speak again. Me. No, not yeah. at all. Well, that's all, folks, for this episode anyway. Thanks, of course, to Siraj. Have a look at his work on the link in the episode description. If you're ever in London, look up Open City. And thanks for listening. See you next Monday. Cheers. <laughs>